uh, the weekend and plenty to hear from the day on RTE Radio 1. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. So uh, the tension between um, Erdogan and, and the civilian authorities and the military, the idea that there's a deep state in the military who, who are looking to depose Erdogan and maybe go back to the to the secularism of Ataturk, you know, the founder of modern Turkey. I mean, th- this is not an ordinary election. There they were 40 years later, Colm, in different circumstances, uh, where they're finally meet in person and for the first time look each other in the eye and see a fellow human being returning their gaze. And my granddad uh, said at the time, it wasn't a good job, we were both lousy shots. I don't see people dressing up as Lorraine. No. I see them dressing up as Caria. Maybe we might win. And we'll start with the news in the afternoon that Irishman Bernard Phelan was released from prison in Iran. Here's Brian Dobson on the News at One. Now to that breaking news this lunchtime that Irish-French citizen Bernard Phelan has been released from an Iranian prison seven months after he was arrested and accused of engaging in anti-government propaganda. His conviction last October and sentencing to six and a half years in jail took place during a wave of demonstrations across the country. At one stage, he went on hunger strike to protest his innocence. Mr Phelan, who's 64, is originally from Clonmel in County Tipperary but lives and works in Paris. His release has been welcomed this lunchtime by Tornista and Minister of Foreign Affairs, Michal Martin, who joins us on the line now. A very good afternoon to you, Mr Martin, and thank you for taking our call. Um, this, has been a dre- this has been a dreadful ordeal, no doubt, for uh, Bernard Field and, and indeed for his family back here in Ireland. And a huge relief, this news to them today, that he's been released. It's been a huge release and it's, um, uh, we're, we're very pleased that he has been released from prison, of course, in Iran. He's on his way home now to his family and we expect that he will be back in France tonight. Uh, it's been an extraordinarily difficult um, seven months for Bernard and for his family members and loved ones. Our thoughts are with all of them today, and particularly his 97-year-old father, Vincent, and his sister, Caroline, um, who I spoke with yesterday and who has been incredibly brave and steadfast uh, throughout this ordeal. And I'm also very pleased and relieved that Benjamin Briere, a French national who was imprisoned with Bernard in Mashhad prison, has also uh, been released and I've just been speaking with my French counterpart here at the informal foreign minister's meeting, Foreign Minister Catherine Colonna, uh, and I want to pay tribute to the French and the Irish teams in Dublin and Paris and Tehran who have been in constant contact over the last seven months and have worked seamlessly together to bring this case to a resolution. Our consular team in Department of Foreign Affairs in Dublin, our diplomats on the ground in Tehran, Justin Ryan in particular, and our ambassador in Turkey, accredited to Iran, Sanya McGuinness, and all of the consular officials in my department and our political team, I think uh, I want to pay a very strong tribute to them, to all of them, Mm -hmm. uh, for this uh, painstaking and consistent work that they've had underway now over the last number of months uh, to to effect Bernard's release. I spoke to the Iranian Foreign Minister, uh, Amir Abdalian, yesterday, spoken to him in February. I acknowledge his assistance and the assistance of the Iranian Ministry of Foreign Affairs in relation to Bernard's case. Um, This has been a priority of ours. Uh, And I'm also conscious that as we celebrate this good news today, there are families of other EU citizens who continue to be detained in Iran and who are anxiously awaiting similar news about their loved ones. Just before I ask you about how his release was was secured, at this stage, do you know his whereabouts? Has he left Iran yet? And and have you any information on his his medical condition particularly? Because his family were very concerned in relation to that. Yeah, he has left um, Iran. um, And um, uh, that would have been within the last hour. um, And... um, 
so and, and French foreign minister would have confirmed that with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have been speaking to the Iranian foreign minister yesterday, so we had the news essentially yesterday that that his release was on track. Um, and um, uh, so, in terms of his condition, I'd prefer him to come uh, to, 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 to Paris in the first instance, and obviously to the assessments there. But mm-hmm. um, uh, I do know that Justin on the ground in Tehran has been in daily contact with Bernard. The circumstances, conditions were very difficult. Uh, of that, there is no question. Uh, so, and on humanitarian grounds, we pressed with the Iranian authorities the absolute necessity to release Bernard. Right. And was that was that the um, basis on humanitarian on wh- ground? Was that the basis on which yes. the, the the release was ordered? Humanitarian grounds? Yes, yes. Within the that framework uh, was uh, the basis upon which the Iranian um, authorities uh, agreed to uh, his release. Uh, so he's expected then Paris and then then back to Ireland. He'll be reunited with his family here. That's the that's the expectation. That's the expectation, but that's a matter for the family. Obviously, Bernard lives in in, in, in France, and uh, obviously he, he he will meet with his his family, of course, mm-hmm. who I think have been uh, exceptional in in their um, in, in their endurance uh, and working with uh, officials in my department. Um, through what has been a very, very difficult uh, seven months for them in particular, as their concerns for Bernard Health obviously grew, given the conditions uh, of, mm-hmm. of, of his imprisonment. Tanishta Michal Martin on the release and pardon of Bernard Phelan in Iran. From the News at One. And in the morning, Derbal MacDonald was sitting in for Claire and her first guest was Eamon Ryan, Minister for Transport, Climate, Environment and Communications. Well, now, first this morning, I'm joined now in studio by Eamon Ryan, Minister for Transport, Climate, Environment and Communications, also the Green Party leader. Good morning to you, Minister. Um, Look, as we've heard this morning, AirGrid, the operator of uh, the National Grid, has announced the results of the country's very first auction for the generation of electricity from offshore wind farms. Words like breakthrough, revolution, landmark uh, being discussed in relation to it. But is this the first time that we have priced, we've put a value, we know exactly the value of our offshore wind capacity? Yes, for the next 20 years. And and that gives us real strength. Uh, we have to go through the planning system, obviously. Um, but that low cost power that can provide today relatively about a third of our power is very significant. But it's also significant in the sense we, we're going to go further. We will start a second auction later this year and we will go on following the same next year And as we start to head into southern waters and into western waters, the scale of our opportunity here is beyond compare to firstly meet our own needs. And that lower cost is important. So we kind of it's affordable to Irish consumers, but then also that we can use that power to create new industries and new jobs and export some of the excess power we will have, because particularly as you head south and west, the scale of the resource is huge. It's Our sea area is seven times our land area. It's one of the windiest places in the planet. And as that wind speeds go up, even marginally, every percentage point you go up in the wind speed, you actually see a huge increase in productivity of these turbines. So we can expect now, what this is, is a very significant vote of confidence, I think, and it's, our, it's a statement of confidence for the country that we now we know we have a power supply that we can turn to, that can be affordable, that is clean and that is secure. And that's why it's a really significant day. So talk to me about the price and, and less gas is the price right? Because obviously the context is is in the midst of a of an unprecedented energy and inflation uh, crisis. Um, 86 euro per megawatt hour of energy. 
What's it at present and what's that going to mean to consumers over time? Well, over the last year, and this has been an exceptional year, very high prices, but the average price of the last year is some €200 a megawatt hour. So it's half that. Um, It it is a set price. There is a certain flexibility to account for inflation in the uh, construction period or before they go to construction and in the operation and maintenance after that. But most of the price, two thirds of it is fixed. So we know that's the same price for the next 20 years. And that's what's really significant. Even if there's high inflation, it, the price still stays steady. There's been a lot of talk in the papers and else more. Well, well it, it, is that just looking at it? Because essentially it's a, a contract for difference. If the market price is below what the auction price is, this 86, um, the, the government has to, to pay the, mm. the companies. If it's above that, you get paid back. Is that going to be a significant cost for uh, the taxpayer in the future if, if that fluctuates wildly? No, because as I said, it is uh, it is a fixed price. It is a price that within our market uh, will really benefit Irish consumers. It, it's a market price which is not affected by the price of carbon or, other, or the price of gas internationally or any other factor. It's something we have control over and it gives us real confidence that we can actually, that we can, uh, not just for consumers, but also for businesses to be able to say, well, in this country, we know we have this price for the next 20 years. And that's the sort of time frame a lot of investment decisions are made. And when we look across to our closest neighbours to the UK, they've had four auctions so far. And every time the price has come down, we're already, even at this 86, we're going to be above the European average and we're certainly above the UK. How far are we going to see those prices fall in the future. I think you have to be careful about some of those reports on newspapers around this because it's complex because comparing with like with like some of those European prices mightn't be uh, might be 100% index linked the UK price you have to actually uh, add on transmission costs and going back 10 years uh, other inflation pressures but the main reason I, I think it's a good price um, I was at an actually offshore wind conference in France for the last two days and talking to the industry there, they recognise the actual cost of, of the materials, cost of steel, cost of the components has gone up about 40% in the last two years. And that's why you have to be careful comparing like with like. So in but this that is fixed cont- for the next 20 years. Yeah. And, and in, in those circumstances... It is, in my mind, a very good price. Talking to the industry, talking to energy experts, people with a real knowledge and understanding of the area, I think most yesterday were saying, yeah, that's actually, but if, if, we've if you actually look, delivered. Again, we'll borrow from our neighbours. Uh, Scotland last year, one of the bids came in as low as 34 yeah, euro and 22 cents. Yeah, but you got to then index back to, nine, to 2012 and you got to include other costs, transmission costs and so on. So you have to be careful comparing what like with like. But from the Irish market, uh, where we are paying high electricity prices... Because of our reliance on fossil fuels, it, it, this is significant because this break takes us away from that, gives us the potential to have an alternative supply. So we're not at the behest of Putin or any other distant regime in terms of what our energy security and future and price is. And Derval asked the minister about energy prices coming down. I suppose, look, what everybody at home and everybody listening is going to just want to know is when are our prices going to come down? If you say that this is yeah. right, because others might say, well, look, are we paying this 86? Is that the price we are paying for being yes. laggards um, in terms of getting our, tapping our offshore our wind capacity? Our prices are high for two or three reasons. Um, the main ones are because of our dependence on imported fossil fuels. Half of our electricity at the moment comes from burning gas, and, and that's very expensive. Secondly, we have a very distributed uh, network. We, we have a very dispersed population system. You have to get wires to every single house, and we're unique in Europe in, the, in, the, uh, in that sort of the level of dispersed kind of housing that we have. So they're the main reasons. The price of electricity has been very high because of the price of gas. The companies do purchase forward gas on 
almost a year and a half in advance. So it'll yeah, take hit. some time to bring that, to see that price coming down as the prices have fallen in the wholesale gas markets. This onshore renewables, so this offshore renewables will start coming into the Irish market in maybe the end 26, 27, that sort of period 28. Each project will have slightly different timeline. Um, it will then have a significant impact in helping to kind of phase us away from that large reliance on on gas. It will bring down the price of electricity. Um, and we are keeping pressure, talking to all the companies to make sure that in the interim period, we do do everything to try and reduce the price. The bills are still very high for consumers. And, and the bills, obviously, just even, look, I mean, anybody who's even trying to renovate their home at the minute will know that the, the, the estimates coming in, the, the cost of inflation is impacting on everything. How secure, again, is that €86 Euro per, per megawatt hour in the context of the inflation crisis? But just more broadly, given that perhaps we don't have a great record in large infrastructural projects. Well, I think, can I go back to the foundation of the state? And this is equivalent. Like, this is equivalent. This is our Ardena Ardena Crusher. This is Ardena Crusher, take two. Because at that time, we invested a quarter of our GDP in in a single amazing hydroelectric system, which is still working today. Those same turbines that were put in 100 years ago are still turning today, even as we speak, probably working. So we can and we, we are good at this. This is a €9 billion euro investment. It's not a small one. And it's the first of a series of investments. As I said, we'll go to another auction uh, early next year and, and one the year after. So this is going to be the more regular, certain. And we can and will be good at this. We are good at renewable energy. Like we are one of the countries in Europe, we're probably in the top three in integrating renewable power. We, ha- we have a large volume of wind, about 40%. And last two weeks, for the first time, we're starting to see solar take hold. It was providing some 10% of power on a sunny afternoon two weeks ago. So when you add onshore wind, and we will build more of that, but there, there is limits because of planning constraints. Add, if you add that to solar and to offshore wind and build interconnection with France and the UK, that gives us the system which where we can balance and, and you put batteries and other storage systems in, in place. We, what this figure yesterday shows is we have a viable, secure way to an energy future. And when you have that, you have a very strong country. Well, look, it, they're obviously very, very ambitious on those targets to get 80% of our energy. Uh, just even we're in Lynch last night, uh, the economist at the ASRI saying that this was a very unbelievably, I think it was the phrase used, an unbelievably ambitious um, target. Before I go on to issues of planning, what proportion of that 80% will be uh, provided by offshore these offshore wind farms? By the end of this decade, we expect to have, I think it's about eight or nine gigawatts of onshore wind, about eight gigawatts of solar and something like seven gigawatts of offshore. That's, so it's roughly one third, one third, one third. The advantage of the offshore is that it's very high capacity. And we as a country, it was a friend of mine, Brendan Halligan, you remember Brendan, former senator, and, and uh, um, he said, we need to turn our comparative competitive advantage in wind into this new industry for the country in the same way that we turned our comparative advantage in growing grass into a food industry, Kerrygold and all the other. It's a similar thing. If you talked at this conference I was at with all the leading industry people across Europe, they acknowledged that what we have in higher wind speeds, we just happen to be in a very windy part of the world, that that advantage is real. That's not going to go away. That's a physical reality. Well, that was just an excerpt of that interview. Eamon Ryan, Minister for Transport, Climate, Environment and Communications, talking to Derby. McDonald in the morning. 
And in the afternoon, a bit of Finnish cha-cha-cha for the Eurovision. Uh, when we were in Liverpool area this week, uh, there were uh, echoes of cha-cha-cha, cha-cha-cha everywhere, belted out from uh, shops and restaurants and pubs and cafes. Uh, Finland have become a firm fan, fan favourite this year's Eurovision, thanks to Maestro of Mayhem. Uh, Korea's mix of industrial metal, Europop, and his distinctive neon green puffed sleeve bolero with a spiked dog collar thrown in for good measure. So who better to talk about the excitement that's building up uh, back in Finland than the Finnish Marty Whelan, their commentator, uh, Miko Silvanoinen. And Miko joins us now from Liverpool. Hello, Miko. Hi, Ray. It's amazing. I've never been on Irish Irish radio. Oh, there so there's something. So there's something in the air. It's cha cha cha. It's crazy. It is crazy. The chance. <laughs> it is crazy. Uh, so how long have you been um, doing this for Finland? Well, I'm not there yet with Marty. I mean, he's a legend. Yes. So I've I've only been doing this since 2016. Uh-huh. But but I've been talking to fans and uh, ex commentators and the experts and we have never ever in the history of Finnish Eurovision received so much attention. Mm. It's, it's strange. I'm not only on um, on Irish radio, which is strange and weird <laughs> and wonderful, thank you, but uh, I've also been asked by the Swiss delegation, how come there are no direct flights from Zurich to Tampere, where I think we would host? Oh, right. uh, it, it, like I get questions like this. Ah. Nobody's ever so, been interested in so, Finland. Miko, so it feels nice. Miko, if people are planning to travel to Finland next year already? Are they jumping the gun? Or is uh, Korea, uh, he's he's unbeatable. Is he unbeatable? Well, as you mentioned, um, Lorraine and Sweden, yes. they are still the favourite to win. But Karia and Finland, we are the fan favourites. Mm. And um, I mean, you never know with Eurovision to be realistic. But um, I mean, top five would be amazing in Eurovision. Yes, but you've won it before. Still, you, who, I don't know. There's something in the air. It's like I don't see people dressing up as Lorraine. No, I see them dressing up as Caria. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. maybe, maybe, maybe we might win. Just on a sidebar, you're your neighbours with Marty Whelan over there, I believe. Yes, I am. Right, and I've I've already been very sorry about stealing your colour, Ireland. Yes, you know. We well, tell people so about I, that because I, green is is Korea's colour. <laughs> yes. So his color originally as an artist was bright yellow. Mm. Uh, but last year in Eurovision, our band, the Rasmus, was in yellow for the competition. So the team had to come up with another bright color and they picked green. And um, I'm, I'm sorry there's a clash now, but okay. I, I think we might keep it. So will you tell us about this guy, Korea? <laughs> What's his real name? Is he huge over in Finland? What's his background? He's, his real name is Jere. It's the first name and last name is Pöhönen. Mm-hmm. And Jere comes from the suburbs of Helsinki, uh, from a place called Vanta, which is where the airport is located. Right. And uh, he's very proud of the area and already planning a party if he wins. Nobody knew him six months ago. But okay, he had some songs already on Spotify and a small fan group, but he was not well-known. But when this song, Cha Cha Cha, was released, it was an immediate hit. It it became a phenomenon in Finland already then, before he won the national final. Right. And in the national final, he was against some of the biggest names in, in Finland. Uh, but he was not a big name, and he, you know, nobody knew him. Mm. So there's something about this song that kind of 
releases that energy and just kind of it's liberating it's it's crazy it's party <laughs> as he says it so it's all happened in less than six months for him and what's the song about for people who haven't heard it well if you only take the lyrics and put them into google translate it will sound like a drinking song right. but it's it's more than that it's about you know fighting your fears and being able to liberate yourself without having to get drunk. Finland's Miko on the Ray Darcy Show. And in the morning, three chords is all it takes, apparently. Ryan Tuberty and his new guitar, gifted to him from Ed Sheeran, were joined by guitar teacher Kevin McNicholas. And it was all because of Kevin's email earlier in the week. What happened was, I saw you on the Late Late Show last week, uh, Ed signing the guitar and giving it to you. And it yeah. reminded me of the story from oh, many years ago when a young lad came to me for lessons, uh, didn't have a guitar, so I loaned him a small one. That weekend, he went to see Christy Moore. Uh, Christy signed his guitar to, you know, the lad, uh, right, right on, right Christy. On, yeah, yeah. And this young guy came bouncing back to me the following week. He couldn't wait to rip the guitar out of the bag and said, look, 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 what do you think of that? And I was going, oh, yeah, yeah, I that's don't my know. guitar you got there. Yeah. <laughs> so, like I said, I, I I gave it to him, and his dad wanted to pay me for it. And I said, forget it, no oh, way. On, it was on. like I said to you, it was worth fifty quid when you took it away from here. Now look at it; it's priceless. Yeah. Uh, we so we decided on the foot of that. Why don't we ask you to come in and see us on a giddy Friday morning? To you know, with me armed with my new toy. Yes. A very beautiful toy, I might say. Santa Claus came early to you. Did, did, did just? What do you think of this guitar? Tell me what you're the, looking at. Because the, people... They're lovely. That's that's the Loudon Ed Sheeran. Okay. Uh, now, this one here is the Loudon Loudon. This is my pride and joy. Oh, so you've got a, the, the Loudon being, is it a Northern Irish? It's Northern Irish, made by George Loudon in, uh, I'm not quite sure, they're, they're uh, where are they? Are they Letterkenny? They're not Letterkenny. No. They're, they're uh, just outside Belfast. Oh, very good. Yeah. OK. Uh, it'll come to me. Um, he's been making guitars there since the early 80s and he makes damn fine guitars. Mm. It, previously, you know, the, 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 the creme de la creme of guitars came from America. Gibsons, Martins, Gills. But uh, the guitars George Loudon's been producing down the years are fine, fine instruments. Sure. Now, they are expensive because they're handmade, they're hand-finished. You pay for what you get. So Ed Sheeran's story, I believe, is that he, he wanted a, a Loudon since he was 13. Couldn't right. afford it, right? But and, and then when he could afford it, he went up to the Loudon showroom and bought half a dozen with him, right? But he... He was very keen to work with George on making a, a guitar that was, you know, a small body guitar like that, yeah. but that was affordable. Most of those guitars are under a thousand euro. Right. And I've been reading the reviews in the magazines online. They're very, very highly regarded. You'll notice that that has a quite small body. Very. And that came, yeah, that came from uh, the States in the 19th century when the ladies wanted a guitar that was smaller and easier for them to manage. Oh, for their frame. Or they became known as parlour guitars. Really? I didn't yes. know that. Okay. Now, if Ed is worried about being cool or not being cool or whatever, like playing a lady's guitar, hello. But yeah. here's the thing. That particular one, because it was made in Northern Ireland, mm. that's known as the Wee Loudon. The Wee Loudon, the because wee it's Loudon. smaller. Okay. It's smaller yeah, yeah. and it has a, it, they're, they're nice guitars to play. They're slightly different, but, you know, they're, it's basically played the same way. Okay. And there's a lovely feel off them. There really is. Um, and because did did you have a go? Did I give you this to, to play for a second there? A second you ago? did. Yeah. Did and it, it was, feel good? Oh, it felt very nice. Very yeah. nice. And yes. in tune, I hope. Yes, in tune and crying out to be played. Um, but that's what I loved. What he said after you know during an interview, he said, mm. "Don't, don't, don't put it in um, you know in a bag and 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 uh, in a in a, ca- a glass case." 
place and, and just hanging up on the wall. Forever. Yeah, no. so but you do play, I take it. And well, I'm look, I, I've I've never played in front of a human being other than myself. Um, and uh, so what I what I've got is the that one, the G, the E minor, <coughs> the C, and the D. So, I, I was, so you don't I, need lessons. That's that's good. That's sorted. You're you're on the road. Okay, that's well, that's a good start. But what I, what I wanted to talk to you about is, as I say, I I don't strum it very often. But when mm. I do, you know, play a little bit, I don't know enough. And people always keep saying the three chords and the truth thing, and it's a kind of a hackneyed line. But how much truth is there in in that? In the sense that you don't have to have fifty five thousand well, chords. When beginners come to me, that's the first thing I say to them. That's the elevator pitch. Three chords on the guitar, three easy chords. You can play hundreds of songs. Okay. Three chords. That really that many. Yeah. Let me ask you a bit about yourself and where you're from. You mentioned Hedford in Galway, and I'm I'm from Hedford. I've lived in Hedford now for the last uh, twenty years. And when did you first pick up a, a, a guitar? Oh, I probably when I was uh, I think about eleven. Yeah. And uh, I was at school in Castlebar. Yeah. And I told my mum I wanted a guitar, and she spoke to my dad, and my dad said, "But didn't he get a fishing rod and he broke it? He got a tennis racket and he lost it. <laughs> he got a bike and it was stolen. Oh, no. But she knew how to, you know, work him. So I ended up getting the guitar. Yeah. Fourteen pounds it uh, cost, and uh, I, I just, I took to it. Yeah. I just loved it, and I was learning for about, I suppose, a year. I was still a beginner. Yeah. When I was stopped by a woman in our neighbourhood who said, "You play the guitar." It wasn't a question, it was a statement. <laughs> she said, I want you to come over to my house next Wednesday at four o'clock and teach my son how to play. Okay. And because I was afraid of her, I said, yes, ma'am, sir. <laughs> so I landed over. My payment was a cream bun, a glass of milk and 50 pence. Not bad. And we had a lesson on a week by week basis. Then a friend of his wanted to play, so he came to my house. I was showing him a few bits and pieces. Yeah. And, and it just grew. And Ryan asked Kevin why people want to learn how to play. That is one thing I don't know. Other than music is so important to yeah. us. I mean, we, we don't, we, we take it for granted these days. You know, if you think about 150 years ago, we didn't have any electricity. If you wanted to hear music, you either had to sing and play it yourself. Yeah. And that's what we did. That's what everybody did. Yes. If you go back to that time, most people could sing and play when you think about it. Yes. Now, come up to the present day, we have music everywhere. You've got music in the phone, on your car, in your kitchen, everywhere you go. And that's great. I love that. But at the touch of the button, you can listen to Queen, you can listen to Elton John, you can listen to Kate Bush, you can listen mm. to Johnny Mitchell. You're listening to the creme de la creme of what's out there. And that has an inhibiting effect on people. I'd love to play the guitar, but I'd never be Bruce Springsteen or I'll never be Christy Moore or whatever. Mm. And th that's not what it's about. You play the guitar because once you get inside the music, the satisfaction yeah. that you get from it, even if you never play outside of your own bedroom of your, or your sitting room, and there's, there's a, that's a huge, that's a vast club of people who play the guitar and, and people don't even know they play. They just do it for their own satisfaction. Yes. The extroverts amongst us, we want to be on a stage somewhere, but lots of people just do it for their own satisfaction. Yeah. And you can't put that into words. It's just the only way you can experience, is, experience it is by doing it. And that's, I think, what drives people. Some of us then, you see, we get fanatical about it yes and we can't put the damn thing down morning noon and night i love it when i get phone calls from students that are doing you know exams and the parent rings up and say did you really tell my johnny or my mary to do four hours practice a day every day and i'm laughing <laughs> no i no. tell them to do half an hour but if they're doing four hours fair play to them yeah. gonna fly it. okay gonna fly okay it. and you don't need to be you just i just i think if i can play a few chords the, the, the fact of the matter is you don't need to be 
ex- an expert at all. I, I, you know, it's well, a, you know, a an expert is nice. An, an expert is somebody who knows more and more about less and less, and so they end up knowing everything about nothing. But you, you know, that that comes over time. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for so sure. That's what I say to people. Three songs, you can play hundreds. Three chords, sorry, you can play hundreds of songs. Four chords, thousands of songs. Five chords. The same five chords, hundreds of thousands Over and of over songs. again. So you just tweak the chords you know to the song Well, you change question. the sequence, you change the strum, you change the key, but the basic chords, that's where the hard work is. That That's five chords. Some people, quite proficient guitar players, would never go beyond five or six chords. Really? A student asked me once, how many chords are there all together? I said, well, I have a chord dictionary there on the shelf, and I know there's 796 chords in that. Yeah. And he said, when you know all those, can you write a song? I said, no, when you know three chords... You can write a song. So Kevin talked us through a simple song structure. The same three chords, by the way, is G, uh, C and D. Oh, round this, and round and round. This is great. So we can do, if, here's my G or C. Yeah. It, so that Just was my G, C, sorry, C. Yeah. And then G again. So they do that two times and the third time is G to C to D. And that's also a repeating pattern all the way down to the end of the song. Well, we're having a go, <laughs> but that's great. So that's a boom. That's three chords. So really, anyone who picks up a guitar can go a little bit of that. Well, that, let's put that. this into context. If it's the first time you've ever touched a guitar, and you work on those three chords, and you manage your practice on a regular basis, half an hour a day, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, you could have that. So can Entire I ask practice. you, how did you first learn? Those few chords. Did you have lessons? Did you get it from a book? No, or? my friend Neil is a great guitarist and really, like, really great, great guitarist and great singer too. Mm. And I, I, I remember watching him and saying, "God, you're brilliant." He's a school friend, still a great friend of mine, one of my best friends. And I was looking at him, going, "You're so good at this." And I'd love to be able to do a little bit on, on my own. And then I've got pals, so if I'm out with my friends, and we might go back to the house for mm. and there'd be a guitar somewhere. Mm. Three out of five of us, and I'm not one of them will pick up the guitar and sing great. And they're, they're, some of them are spoofing, yes. some of them are, are proficient, but it's a great time. But I will never pick up the guitar because they're too good. But it was from them, really, and I, and I, I, but I keep it to myself. I don't. I, I would be a little embarrassed. It's like one of those things where you've got this great so-called confidence when you're out doing I could stand up in front of any room and talk for an hour, but I could never sing or, or play. I know, and that's the inhibiting factor again. Yeah. You know, lo- lots of people struggle with that, but that's why lots of people would play on their own, privacy of their own home, yeah. and just get great, huge satisfaction. Just your own thing. It. I will never do it. Like, mm. I remember saying that to Ed Sheeran after this. Uh, 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 I'll never play this guitar, mm. you know, I, um, I, I don't want this to do, or I don't want to be a singer or anything like that, but I do love music. And that's okay. But I come across all the time uh, people, and adults especially, who would love to be able to play, but they didn't ever get round to it and they think now that it's too late that they're past it and I've spent years trying to explain to them you know what no get no. yourself a guitar borrow beg steal whatever get yourself a guitar we get you started find a guitar teacher and if you can manage that half an hour's practice a day most days then you're going to see results fairly quickly somebody said would Kevin recommend learning the ukulele as a lead into playing guitar or would you say just get the get, get straight to the guitar well yes but I'll tell you what if you have a youngster in the house small kids who want to learn to play the ukulele is brilliant it's for fine. that it's only four strings yeah Huge guitar is six strings I'd say straight in no kissing if get, God had intended guitar. us to play the guitar she'd have given us six fingers but if you have a small <laughs> kid that wants to learn the ukulele is a great instrument and an awful lot of the schools these days have, have copped onto that idea yeah. and they're, they're doing uh, ukulele lessons um, could you ask your guest if a special needs child would be able to learn guitar in your experience y- yes 
or if not learn, they could certainly have fun with the guitar. That's a good answer. Uh, if they have a guitar and they want to just, you know, do some strumming, some little tunes, bits and pieces like that, they, every, everybody differs so much. But yes, I've, I've had experience of that and it's lovely. It works. Kevin taught me the John Denver song Back Home Again with three chords years ago in Castle Bar. Uh, I can still play it and haven't progressed, but it was great for Maggie and Ballina. And uh, Kevin, I bought a K acoustic guitar from you in 1980 in Fitzgerald's Music Shop on the Main Street in Castlebar. <laughs> and I still have it from Paddy in Mayo. Really? So, yeah, yeah, they still, they still remember. <laughs> I hope he's changed the strings on that since. You <laughs> uh, would think so. Uh, I could just ask Kevin, does Harry Nielsen's Lime in the Coconut only have one chord? Bill wants to know. Do you know what? It does. Go on. Only one chord. Yes. That's the, the puts the lime in the, the coconut. But that one goes, breaks Ha-da. all the rules. Yeah, one yeah. chord. And Do you strangely, know which chord it is, or does it matter? It can be any chord you want. Okay. Just, yeah. I'm trying to remember the tune, and I can't no, remember. No, it's, it's also it a very difficult tune. Chord. I got my first guitar at 14 years old, didn't know what he, uh, for, sorry, got my first guitar as 14-year-old who didn't know what he wanted for Christmas. So I asked for a surprise. Best gift I ever got, says Tom. The ultimate in mindfulness, which has seen me through the best and worst times of my life. I had That's to almost sure. completely relearn it after some very bad health in 2015. As instrumental, excuse the in my continuous healing. Keep up the playing. It could be definitely one of the, the best friends you could ever make. Nicely put, Tom. It really is. I tell you, what playing music on any instrument can do for your mental health is just, it's, it's priceless. Kevin McNicholas on The Ryan Tupperty Show. And in the morning, Derbal MacDonald was looking to the weekend's elections in Turkey. Well, this weekend in Turkey, millions of people will head to the polls to vote in the country's presidential and parliamentary elections. It's set to be a defining moment for the country as voters choose between two presidential front runners offering radically different paths for Turkey's future. To take a closer look at what we can expect, I'm joined in studio by Graeme Finlay, lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations at UCD. Good morning, Graeme. Good morning. Um, it's Sunday's election. It feels as if the eyes of the world will be looking um, to Turkey. Before we get to, to all of the machinations, just talk us through the current system in place under, under Erdogan. So this is an incredibly important election. Turkey is an incredibly important country. 85 million people, hugely important economy and military power, huge refugee crisis and so forth. But, you know, Erdogan's rule has been in coup which um, almost succeeded or had a good chance of succeeding. And so in the wake of that, he pushed through a constitutional reform, which made the presidency much more powerful, an executive presidency, whereas previously the prime minister was was the most important role. So he, in the, in the course of that, he's um, put his son-in-law as finance minister, and he's really kind of run the finances of Turkey into the ground. He's clamped down on social media and, and broadcast media and any kind of media. Uh, he has um, a broad powers over every aspect of, of Turkish uh, life, including including setting the interest rates because there's no independent central bank. And, and that has fueled an economic crisis, which is which going to make it, it very it, difficult it, for him to it, win. Which is at one point saw inflation rates last year, I think, rise above 85 um, percent. Um, he has had an extraordinary rule, quite authoritarian. He's emerged in the last 15 years, along with all of those other strong men leaders, you know, Putin, Bolsonaro, and he's really taken his place um, amongst that. This could be a defining election for Turkish people, particularly because of its, its demographics. Are the young people going to potentially change the course of Turkey's future? That they're certainly hoping to. I mean, I mm-hmm. talked to my younger Turkish colleagues, and if you look at interviews with, with young Turkish people, they only know Erdogan as their 
um, leader of Turkey, right? Whether as prime minister or as president. We're born with it. And uh, now, while there are some young people who might be religious conservatives who, who, who are very, very loyal to Erdogan, and, and we have to remember, he brought in the possibility of being a sort of moderate Islamist in Turkey against a fiercely secular state, which um, is behind perhaps the coup in 2016 and certainly has been behind a number of other coups. So there's this struggle, I think even in young people, for to find out a Turkish identity. But I think the majority of young people really think this is their last chance to preserve Turkish democracy. The opposition, led by uh, Kemal Kilic Darolu, uh, are, are promising to roll back the presidential reform, the constitutional reform, to make roll back the financial uh, you know, malfeasance of Erdogan, let's put it that way, or, and create an independent central bank. Uh, and a, a lot of young Turkish people think that if they don't win this election, there won't be any more elections. Look, it is extraordinary because even in the last couple of days, the uh, Turkish election took a huge uh, twist and turn when one of the front runners um, fell out of the race amid cries of uh, that there were fake uh, photos circulating <laughs> of him. But um, it is extraordinary now that you have these two front runners with two very, very different views and, uh, you know, by a simple majority, um, I think Erdogan could end up losing that stronghold. But talk to me just about the conditions before we get to how that runoff might work, because the earthquake was devastating. Um, and the inflation crisis, even though it has eased coming into the election, I think some independent economists still put it at over 100 percent. Yeah, it's, an, it's a, a sign of how bad things are that when Maharam Insha, who's that, that third candidate who was on about two and a half, three percent of the vote, um, resigned. Turkish politics is wild because of a sex tape. Uh, uh, but he, he did it for the good of the country, actually, to unify the opposition, of course. But, uh, you know, um, it's hard to believe. But you know well, the stock how, how market. How did his votes get um, distributed? Because the stock market did rise on his. Well, that's uh, what I was about to say. The stock market went up six percent um, on his announcement yesterday that he was pulling out of the race, and uh, his votes do seem to be going to uh, Kilic Darolu. The, you know, the the mood in the country is 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 very very poor. The the earthquake was incredibly devastating. Fifty thousand earthquakes, I should say. Fifty thousand people killed. Millions displaced. One of the other factors in the voters is a. Um, those millions of people were dispersed to the rest of Turkey. Now, some of them will, will they get to vote. Some of them will be able to vote where they are, but one million of them are trying to get back to southeastern Turkey to where they're registered to vote so that they can vote. Mm-hmm. And their votes, obviously, are going to be very, very important. Um, they may not be very well disposed towards uh, the government, uh, put it that way, because the response has been quite poor. Earthquake politics in Turkey are really, really important in that it was a 1999 earthquake which helped propel Erdogan to power. In and the yet first he place. has presided over all of the, those, you know, criticisms of building regulations that are said to have contributed to the sheer scale of deaths that we saw. Yeah, and, last and people year. were wondering where the military was, and that mm-hmm. just shows you how high the stakes are in this election. Um, one of the narratives is that uh, Erdogan didn't want to deploy the military because deploying the military would have given them the, the opportunity to launch yet another coup. So uh, the tension between um, Erdogan and, and the civilian authorities and the military, the idea that there's a deep state in the military who, who are looking to depose Erdogan and maybe go back to the, to the secularism of Ataturk, you know, the founder of modern Turkey. I mean, th- this is not an ordinary election. Green Finley talking to Daryl MacDonald in the morning. 
And in the afternoon, Irish diplomat Aidan O'Hara was speaking about the attack he endured in Sudan as war broke out. The Irish diplomat Aidan O'Hara, who was held at gunpoint when his residence was attacked in the opening days of the conflict in Sudan, has been describing his experience and his dramatic evacuation from the country. Mr O'Hara, a former Irish ambassador to Ethiopia and currently the EU's ambassador to Sudan, was speaking in Brussels to our Europe editor Tony Connolly a short time ago. The good news is I wasn't hurt. It was um, held at gunpoint. Uh, it lasted about 45 minutes. Um, that's what I'll say about it for the moment. Uh, I think uh, I wasn't alone. There were multiple violations of the, the Vienna Convention. Um, talking to my colleagues, um, the other European Union ambassadors, um, very few diplomatic premises were untouched, uh, even in those early days, whatever about now. And... Um, um, they can speak for themselves. But uh, in fact, ironically, I had spoken to the foreign ministry just the day before looking for more protection for um, um, diplomatic premises. Um, but um, then the conflict just became chaotic. Obviously, evacuating European citizens from Sudan became a very, very fraught uh, process for a lot of European countries. What was your own experience of getting out uh, of the country? During the transfer to the air base, uh, one French military um, was was injured. Uh, during the convoy, there was a, a, a bomb dropped, not on the convoy, but near the convoy. This is the convoy you were travelling in? Yes. So I think, you know, I think this was obviously a consular operation, uh, uh, but it was also a military operation. Uh, and I think it had to be conducted in um, on very very strict terms. And did you have any foreboding that this would happen, or or, or any security warnings, for example? Um, I think we were in constant touch with the parties. Um, I think what we felt was that they were still talking, uh, sometimes not directly to each other. Um, I met the um, General Burhan, General Hermetti, a few days before, April the 15th. I was talking to the civilian people just the day before, on April the 14th. I think at that stage we were looking at ways to try and circumvent an issue between the two generals that would keep the civilian process on track. Uh, and then um, everything um, came apart on the morning of um, April the 15th. What, what's your memory of that morning? Uh, my memory of that morning was it's, it's not um, sadly unusual because there are so many armed groups in Khartoum to sometimes hear volleys of uh, gunfire, but um, uh, it's um, on April the 15th, it was uh, volleys of gunfire quite close to the house, followed by explosions, followed by a lot of black smoke. So that was the, the first, and that was quite a clear signal that everything had changed. The important thing for me afterwards is that um, I'm fine and I was unhurt. Um, it wasn't a pleasant experience, obviously. Um, but what I think was, it was not the most stressful thing that happened to me in those uh, week to 10 days uh, during the conflict while I was present. I think, like everybody else in Khartoum and elsewhere in, uh, in, in, in Sudan, uh, what was more stressful was being uh, at home with uh, bombs falling and gunfire on the streets uh, on either side of the house. And um, I wasn't unique in that. I think I consider myself very fortunate now to be out of Khartoum 
I'm still trying to work on the political process um, to get the civilian rule back on, on track. But I'm, 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 I'm very relieved that I was unhurt. And um, if I can, through you also, just say a very big thank you to so many people who reached out uh, through a variety of means uh, to see about whether I was okay um, and uh, to inquire about my welfare and to give me support. Um, I think of my colleagues in the External Action Service, my colleagues in the Department of Foreign Affairs, uh, the Tonish, but so many friends, um, so many people who um, I've met at some point in the past, uh, even going back to my school days, who have sometime, somehow managed to find me and I'm very grateful for that. I've tried to reply to some people uh, but there are now so many uh, it's been quite overwhelming and uh, I don't know if I'll get to reply to everybody in person so this is a very welcome opportunity to say a big thank you to people even though I haven't been in touch with them. How would you personally feel and, and your wife feel about uh, going back uh, to your day-to-day -day life there? Uh, the Sudanese people are fantastic, very hospitable, uh, and I, I'm looking forward to getting back uh, to, to being them and to see colleagues uh, and, and to, to just getting back to Khartoum uh, and seeing how people are, can, are getting along. Um, I doubt if it will be a place where spouses of diplomats, families of diplomats will be going back to soon. I think at the moment um, we're regrouping here uh, in, um, in Brussels. Um, it means that I can talk uh, to my own hierarchy, I can talk to ECHO, the humanitarian organisation, I can talk to um, the development um, directorate, uh, known in the jargon as INPA. Uh, so we have very good communications here. I'm also uh, in regular contact with all the other EU ambassadors accredited to Sudan. Um, at some point, I, I hope we can go back to Khartoum. That's the ambition. Aidan O'Hara speaking to Tony Connolly from the News at One. And on the live line, Colin O'Mungoin was talking to Tom McGauley about his grandfather's part in the 1922 civil war on the pro-treaty side. Tom McGauley, where was your grandfather, the man you regard as your hero, in June 1922? Well, Colin, do you agree? It's going to start too. Um, yeah, thanks for on. having me on. Yeah, uh, I'll tell you, my, my granddad, Tom McGauley, and my namesake, he was in June 1922. He was on, from the 28th of June, he was on O'Donovan Rosser Bridge. And he was there for a very specific reason, because he was part of the army deployment uh, that was tasked with flushing out uh, the anti treaty contingent led by Rory O'Connor. It also included the, the likes of Sean Lamass. Uh, Ernie O'Malley, Joe Griffin, etc. So, Grandad was uh, he was a gunner on the bridge, and um, he was uh, he was there for a number of days, taking pot shots at uh, another gunner uh, who would have been a former comrade up until months, uh, literally just a, few, a matter of months beforehand, and they were taking pot shots at each other. And the interesting thing, Colin, about the story is that obviously my, my granddad lived to tell the tale. Um, and, but he always wondered what happened to the uh, to his opponent on the on the other side. And my my auntie Mary, Lord of Mercy on her, she was for many years was the um, she was the PA to a, a series and succession of managing directors at Waterford Crystal, or Waterford Glass. And at the time, shortly after she took up the role, the managing director at the time was a man called Noel Griffin. And uh, he asked Mary if she if she would invite her parents, my granny and granddad, to a social event that was being organised by the company because his parents, Joe and Maureen, would be in attendance and he thought it'd be nice for them to have the company of a, people of a similar age. 
So they were delighted, you know, got them out of Wicklow for the night and um, they spent the company in the, in, you know, in the, at the table with Mr. and Mrs. Griffin. And I think one of the marks of that, that generation... Oh, so, sorry, that, what, what year would this have been when they, when they attended oh, this, that social oh, this event? this would have been over 40 years later. This is in the late 1960s. So almost 50 years had, had passed. Um, and so they went along and um, I think as was the practice of members of that generation, they, they became fairly adept at sussing out uh, what side of the, of the tree to divide you were on by asking polite and uh, subtle but probing questions to establish the bona fides of the, of the other in relation to the, the treaty and the Civil War. Um, and my, my Auntie Mary, she used to tell the story that she looked over at one point uh, just to check and see how they were getting on. And my grandfather, who was a, a, a very reserved man by nature, he was a man of his generation, he was dabbing his eyes with, with a handkerchief. So she went over to my grandmother and said, what's, what's the matter with, with Dad? And uh, Granny told her that, that that my grandfather and Mr. Griffin had established through the conversation that the, they had been on opposing sides in the Civil War. Actually, Joe Griffin had been the Director of Intelligence in the Anti-Treaty IRA, and he was he was with Harry Boland the day that, that uh, Harry Boland was arrested and uh, the day he died in Malahide. And then they found themselves in the same part of Dublin uh, in June 22. There was a 22-year-old Joe Griffin and a 20-year-old Tom McGauley uh, in the army, and they'd taken up their respective positions. And uh, Griffin was the, the 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 gunner and the machine gun, or the, the gunner's nest on top of the four courts. And my granddad, uh, Tom McGauley, was trying to to shoot him from the from the bridge, and they exchanged fire over over the course of the um, of, of, of the uh, of, of the event. And there they were, 40 years later, column in different circumstances. Uh, where they finally meet in person and for the first time look each other in the eye and see a fellow human being returning their gaze. And my granddad uh, said at the time, it wasn't a good job, we were both lousy shots, you know. So that in itself tells its own story, you know, that they found uh, hu- huge common ground. And I think it's like the old maxim that we have a lot more in common, far more in common than separate us as people. And so do, you, do, do you know how they established where one another were on the day? Because you say it began with a kind of a gentle probing and obviously yeah. nobody knows what way that kind of a conversation is going to con- going to turn in the climate of the times. I suppose even yeah. history as it was taught in schools came to a dead stop in 1916 precisely just to avoid this very subject. So how yeah. did they get yeah. on it, do you know? I can only surmise, Colm, and I can only surmise by what, what I know of my, my, my grandfather. And he was a, a man of absolute integrity, as was, I believe, Joe Griffin. And, and just on an aside, I, I, I think it's important, looking back with a sense of maturity and perspective, that, uh, that I think every single one of the protagonists in the Civil War, all the men and women, that they, they believed that they were acting uh, in good faith and that they were acting in the best interests of Ireland and Irish freedom. Obviously, they disagreed fundamentally and and regrettably often in the most callous and brutal of ways, but their motives to me were, at least, uh, and to them, were were well-meaning and heartfelt. And I think in in the fullness of time as well, and also the fact that, you know, my granddad would have, he would have known of Joe Griffin through my Auntie Mary, and she has a huge amount of respect for him. And Joe Griffin, uh, with, I think it was Joe McGrath, had set up the sweepstakes. So he was somebody who would be, he would have been in the public eye, or he would have been on the, certainly on the radar. And um, I think Grandad being Grandad, and obviously Joe Griffin being Joe Griffin, they would have looked beyond the, 
Right. And Mr. Young. Tom there then. Bernadette O'Connor called column about her granduncle Liam Lynch. Bernadette, you're a grandniece of, of, of Liam Lynch. He was also a man who, even though it's not often portrayed as such in history now, he was somebody who also tried to find a middle path. Yes, um, how are you, Colm? And very interesting there listening to Tom. Um, Hi, yes, how are you? He did try to find the middle ground, but um, when it came to it, um, I suppose after the truce um, was signed and the treaty was signed, um, he decided to to go into conflict, you know, and that's the way he, he dealt um, himself and Michael Connors, they would have been on very good terms during the War of Independence and all of his other um, colleagues. But um, I think after the, four, the bombing of the four courts and that, there was, there was no going back. Um, he would have witnessed after the 1916 rising in Fermoy, he was um, working as an apprentice in a hardware shop there and he would have witnessed the Kent brothers uh, following the 1916 rising, um, being marched across the bridge in Fermoy by the British Army. And I think that was the catalyst for him then, um, for, for the future that, you know, it was going into armed conflict, really. Um, he had a good time for Michael Collins and the political side of it as well, but he decided to go the, the other route. Well, there was you know? firm foundations within your family, wasn't there? I mean, the, Liam Lynch's biographies also say there was a, a history of land activism and even Fenianism within the family. That's right. Um, his father, Jeremiah, was a member of the Fenians and his mother, Mary, was secretary of the local Ballylanders Land League. So, and he was very influenced by his godmother, um, who Hannah Cleary, who was... Um, a daughter of William Condon, who was uh, also very involved in the Fenians and um, had uh, ridden to Kilmallock um, to join, you know, a group there who thought they were going to be going to Dublin for the Rising. So, yeah, it was in his background and back further as well. Um, so I think following that event in Fermoy, then he, with the Kent brothers, he joined the volunteers and... Um, climbed the ranks fairly quickly. He also joined the Gaelic League. And uh, I think his whole attitude would have changed and he decided then to dedicate his life to freedom. Um, and what about and his sure. brother, your grandfather? What what was his involvement? Yeah. Um, he had two other brothers uh, involved in the conflict. So there was John, who was my grandfather, my mother's um, dad, and he had a brother, James, as well. So both of them were very involved in the conflict and they were actually interred in uh, Newbridge and Curra over the years. And so when Liam um, was tragically shot on the Knockmill Downs, uh, they weren't allowed out to the, the funeral because um, they would not uh, swear the oath of allegiance. So his mother really... That was a condition of attending the funeral, was it? They, in order to get yes, out of internment in, in the current? Yeah. They had so to swear the oath of allegiance. They had to swear the oath. So the two of them were missing. And um, he had two other brothers then, um, Martin and Tom, who were both um, in religious orders. Uh, they were a very religious family and a family of very high principles. 
as you as you will see with a lot of um, of the volunteers or you know comrades, right. they have great faith. Bernadette O'Connell from the Live Line with Colm O'Mungoin. And in the morning, Derbo MacDonald was talking about our relationship with seafood. As an island nation, we're just not that into fish. And Chips in Dungarvan's Eunice Power knows her cod from her salmon. Is it really true to say that we've always been a bit reluctant to try fish in Ireland despite being surrounded? Absolutely, seas? yes, that's, that's 100% correct. And then the um, idea of cooking fish at home, I think it's sort of a generational thing where people were a little bit put off by um, fish was cooked on Fridays, um, probably didn't have extractor fans in the house, mightn't have been the freshest of fish and everything smelled of fish. So it's sort of people were a bit reluctant to cook fish at home. Yeah, and I think that's one of my kind of earliest memories, you know, um, no meat on a Friday. So fish sort of was nearly like in your young mind, a punitive thing, you know, that's something you had to eat on a Friday rather than sort of something really to be enjoyed and people maybe didn't have the confidence to, to cook no, it. No, they didn't. And, you know, it was I suppose the distribution wasn't great either. You know, if you're inland, it was hard enough to get fish. So it may not have been at its peak when it arrived at your door if you lived somewhere like Athlone or Mullingar, you know, so you can understand why they might not like to eat fish that often. But, um, yeah, it is, um, it, it is an issue for Irish people eating fish. I mean, we should be eating fish two or three times a week. Um, most people are lucky to eat fish once a week. We don't look at the range of fish we have. People tend to go for safe options like cod. Um, I know in and chips. Cod, cod, which used to be the food of the masses and now yeah. is so it, it can be so difficult to get Eunice because when you, we're talking about cooking and eating fish, a lot of um, what people say back is, yeah, I'd love to but it's actually very expensive. People fear the expense of fish. Is that, again, is that a little bit overplayed or? Mm, well, it is. I actually just, it is and it isn't, you know. Um, a portion of fish costs, for example, if you're buying haddock, hake, cod is more expensive, ling, you're going to pay between four or five euros a portion. Um, if you kind of put that into relative things, you know, you, do you think twice by paying 150 for 500 mils of water? You know, and cod is such a pure form, or not cod, but rather fish is such a pure form of protein. Eunice Power talking to Derval MacDonald in the morning. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time.